This episode of the Bible for Normal People is brought to you by News and Pews. Get news and deals on books from the biggest names in Christian thought by subscribing to their free e-newsletter at newsandpews.com. You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everybody, to our episode today. The topic is reading the Bible. I could just stop there. No, it's not about that. It's reading the Bible as an experience and a relationship. Now you're saying, what the heck does that mean? Okay, I don't blame you, but our guest is Diana Butler-Bass, and she's done a lot of thinking on her own journey of faith about the importance of the Bible, which she thinks is very important, as do we, and what it means to read it well. And the, the idea of reading the Bible as an experience and a relationship, those aren't just buzzwords, but it's a way of talking about, I guess, an intimate relationship with the Bible that uh, Diana describes as basically love. And not, not a clinical sort of textbook that you memorize verses that sort of, you know, lock you into ways of thinking, but more of a relationship that grows and changes over time. And I just, you know, Jared, in my experience, I know that resonates with me, but I know what it resonates with a lot of people out there who are just genuine, authentic Christians trying to make sense of life and going through, you know, life with all its ups and downs and pains and triumphs. And how does the Bible fit into all that? And, and thinking of it as less of a rule book and more of as something that, we get to participate in is is a very helpful thing for people to hear. Yeah, and I think the one thing that was refreshing is she starts, you'll hear, she starts with saying how people often ask her, you know, why don't you talk more about the Bible? And I think that's been your experience, it's been my experience too, which can be hurtful in some religious communities where you're you're accused of not taking the Bible seriously when really what you've done is you've found it so immensely helpful and you take it so seriously that you move beyond mm-hmm. a transactional relationship with the Bible mm-hmm. and you move into a relationship of love and into informing experience. You start seeing the nooks and crannies, the warts and the ugliness. It's like a, a true marriage where you're starting to see each other as we are and it becomes that relationship. And so I appreciated her in that context of uh, you know, people say I don't talk about the Bible enough, or maybe I don't care about it. But through the conversation, it's clear she has a deep love for the scriptures and yeah, the and way that she's weaving in and out of it. Right, and sometimes people mistake not using certain code words, which right. is something that she brings up, for like not taking the Bible seriously. And that's a good point. And that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess it could be, but it's it's not the case. It's just that the code words can sometimes tame the Bible. And reduce it to something that's easily graspable and even controllable. And maybe the Bible isn't sort of meant to be like that, you know. Right. So, so Diana, I mean, a lot of you probably know who she is. Diana Butler Bass. She's an author, does a lot of speaking. She does a lot of writing too. Her most recent book is called "Grounded: Finding Faith in the World." Finding it's God. Finding God, rather. I can't read. I'll try that again. "Grounded: Finding God in the World: A Spiritual Revolution." which is all about the holy around you and seeing God around you and the everyday things. And she has a book upcoming in about a year. It's called Grateful, which comes out of this book, Grounded. But she does a lot of writing about Christianity and normal people. And she's got this great book called Christianity, 
um, for the rest of us, how the neighborhood church is transforming the faith, stuff like that. So if you're not familiar with Diana, I think if you're a normal person, and I hope you are, I, I think you'd sort of really get a lot out of uh, her writings and her thinking and She's very active on Facebook and especially Twitter and all that sort of stuff, too. All right. Well, let's get into our conversation with Diana Butler-Bass. Um, let's do that. I, and I, and I, I love actually referring to the Bible as the Word because I'm a writer. And more than anything else, I, I, I believe in words and the consideration of, of the Word. So here, I just refuse to think that the word can be captured into a conventional phrase that makes someone feel better. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Diana Butler Bass. Welcome to the Bible for Normal People. It's so good to be with you. I, I can't believe... I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I mean, we get that a lot. People just, it's, so, it's your bucket list. You just check it off now, right? Well, I was just thinking the last time I saw you, we were at dinner together. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know that your first book with Harper One had come out at that point. But I was so excited about your project and where your journey was. And so, so I, I was just delighted to be able to accept this invitation. And it's very nice to meet Jared. Well, yeah, and it's great to have you here, too. So that's fantastic. And we're going to talk today about reading the Bible. And you do that, you, you've been sort of on a, on a journey, a process over, I don't know, is it maybe months or years? And you've been doing a lot of thinking about that. And I know I have, and Jared has, and I'll bet you a lot of people listening, that's exactly where they are. Like, what do I do with this? And what, what meaning does it have? So ca- catch us up a little bit on, on where you were and the process and where you are now. And let's take it from there. Well, one of the reasons I was excited about being with you on this podcast is that people ask me all the time if I read the Bible. Um, and I think that's because over the last 15 or so years, the work that I've done has largely been in um, this sort of trends about religion, looking at sociology, and I'm trained as a historian. And so oftentimes when I do presentations, I'm, I'm talking about sociology, I'm talking about history, I'm talking about the ways people gather, and I have written almost all of that towards thinking about congregations and the ways in which people form community. So, so I have to confess that through the years I've been a little shocked when I'll 
be doing an event and I'll be teaching for maybe a day or two and someone will raise their hand and they'll say something like, well, we've been here with you for, you know, for the last 48 hours and you haven't even mentioned the Bible. And, and I kind of, <laughs> I'll kind of look at them and I'll say, well, that really wasn't my topic. <laughs> um, but I would hope that you would listen, as you listen to me, that you're hearing the voice of a person who is deeply formed by the stories of scripture and who is deeply formed by a love of God and Jesus and and that the Bible obviously is something in some ways I take for granted and so, so I would answer the question that way and people would look at me and they'd say no you have to be specific so that's actually one of the reasons. Well, let me I'm, ask you something. I mean, that's I was very looking forward to coming, to coming on because it gets right. me to talk about something that people think I don't care about. The nerve of these people. <laughs> the nerve of these people. So you're coming question. clean. You're coming clean <laughs> on the show. Yeah. You do read the Bible. <laughs> happy you to, heard it here ha first. Happy folks. to help. But actually, that's, that's the way you phrase it. That's fascinating to me. What do you think lies behind that question? Well, I... I've often thought that what's behind that question is the fact that people expect that Christians sort of come out with certain kinds of code words or certain kinds of conventional interpretations of scripture. And if you don't put those forward in your presentations, if you don't talk about those things while you're teaching or if you don't use particular words when you pray, uh, people kind of look at you. And they think, well, is she, is she really a Christian? And so I have spent a lot of my life as a, as a writer, as a thinker, and as a scholar trying to actually get away from code words. Mm -hmm. I, I will never forget when I, <laughs> well, I, I just will never forget when I was in, in high school. I'm pretty sure it was my sophomore year, and I wrote my very first ever uh, thesis paper for Mrs. Broderick. And I got it back, uh, and I was the kind of student who was used to getting lots of A's and papers. I got it back, and it had a B on it. And I was so shocked. And I looked at the comments, and Mrs. Broderick had taken a red pen, and she had underlined all of these different sort of sentences I had written. And next to all of them, they said the same thing. Trite phrase, trite phrase, trite phrase. And I didn't, I didn't even know what a trite phrase was. <laughs> <laughs> I was like 15 or 16 years old. I had no idea what she was talking about. So I looked it up. And there it was. The trite phrase is conventional wisdom. The thing that you expect people to say, but that actually means nothing. And ever since that episode, I have spent a life fleeing from <laughs> Mrs. Broderick and her red pen. And I never really wanted anybody to ever write on my paper again, trite phrase. Right. And so I have tried throughout all of my work, my presentations, my, my, my public writing, my private writing. I actually write a lot for myself in journals. I write a lot of poetry that's not shared in public. I always am trying to, to say the things that are deepest on my heart in ways that are unexpected and beautiful and surprising. Mm-hmm. 
And so, so I think that when I do a presentation and when I'm in a room of Christians, they sort of expect me to say Jesus' name in certain ways, or they expect me to quote the Bible in particular ways. And I just never do that. I just, I just won't. You um, bristle against that. You, you don't want to do that. I, I, yes, I think that it is, it actually undermines the power and beauty of the Christian scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures to encapsulate them into these trite phrases and these markers of identity that you have to sort of put out there so people will say, oh, she's safe. Because the, the, the word, these, the, and, I, and I, I love actually referring to the Bible as the word because I'm a writer. And more than anything else, I, I, I believe in words and the consideration of, of the word. And so, so, so here, I just, I just refuse to think that the word can be captured into a conventional phrase that makes someone feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Bible itself is a book that is full of surprise, that should constantly call us into a place where we never expected to be mm-hmm. and should never serve to underscore um, what we find to be a conventional reading. Yeah, where we control the word, I guess, by taming it and by boiling it down to stock phrases and language where everybody agrees upon, where it stops challenging us and more just confirming us at where we are. Yeah, I, I think that that is really true. I, I, I not only bristle against just the phrases or the stock sort of interpretations, but I also really worry when people think that there's a single way, you know, of reading um, a particular story. And just because everyone has always read a story in one sort of frame, it does not mean that that is the only frame. And so when I preach, for example, I love, I always go to the text. I I love preaching from the the lectionary, which is, of course, that standard book of readings that is shared by mainline Protestant churches throughout the world. So it's a scheduled set of readings that's a cycle of every three years. Um, And you don't have a in, in those churches, you don't have the option, really, of saying, oh, this week I'm going to preach a series, you know, begin a series on Romans. No, you, you stick with this mm-hmm. lectionary, the scheduled readings. And so when I'm, when I'm preaching, I actually love the scheduled readings uh, because here's this set of stories that churches throughout the world have deemed to be significant for the living of of Christian life and for thinking about Christian faith. Um, But yet I always go to those stories and I say, okay, what is it that surprises me about this text? What have I never thought about before in relationship to this particular story? Even though I have, I'm 58, I've spent the better part of my life in mainline churches. I've heard those same stories over and over and over again. I go to the, 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 the lectionary and I expect to be surprised. And that's what I preach on, whatever the surprise was. Not what people expect to hear, 
not what people have been comforted by over time, but the thing that might just sort of send everybody off the pews. And sometimes actually, you know, not, you know sometimes what? You're, it actually you're does. A, I have people walk out of me all the time. I was going to say, you're, you're a contrarian, aren't you? I am. Do you have any friends? Uh, I don't. I don't have any friends. <laughs> can we be friends, Diana? I would we, can, <laughs> we can be friends. <laughs> Actually, I, I wind up having a friends with, uh, being friends with a lot of people who are quite contrary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> difficult dinner parties. Well, the world needs like seven of us. <laughs> no, that's about it, though. More than that, and the place will blow up. But anyway. <laughs> so, so, Diana, just some of the words you were using, the word that comes to my mind is kind of the, the text, Scripture as dynamic, you know. And, you, you know, you've, you've mentioned some things that Scripture aren't. So they're not, it's not to help us feel better. It's not an identity marker that if we use this language, now we know who's in and who's out. It's not helping us to identify those markers it's not about control or a similar related word about certainty. Um, maybe even it's not about getting what's historically accurate in the, I'm throwing that in there on my own, but this I dynamic. So can you just talk a little more about the scriptures as, as dynamic? If it's not about those things, say a little more about what it is. What is it for you? Well, first of all, it's an experience. Um, you know, if we, if we really truly believe that scripture is somehow the word of God, um, why would we think that that would remain the same? Why would we think that wouldn't be dynamic? Um, and why would we think that that wouldn't be upsetting? Um, <laughs> and, and, and so I think of it as every time we encounter the word of God, we are being drawn towards some new level of experiencing the presence, the power, the passion of God. And that experience leads to the second way that I think about scripture. I think about it as a door to a relationship, um, a relationship with the God whose word it is and a relationship with the world that is God's central concern. And so that's the way that I, at this point in my life, approach um, reading the Bible as an experience of an uncontrollable word and as the entry point uh, to a deeper relationship with both God and the world that God loves. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. It's hard to teach that. I think there's, you can't like give somebody a pamphlet. Here's how you do it. Yeah, I guess I guess it is. Um, Doesn't mean it's 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 by for that reason healthy. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't script it. But I think it's it, that would be something that you know. I mean, I resonate very much with what you're saying. I know Jared does too. A lot of people aren't there. Yeah, because, and that's, you know, that's kind of sad, isn't it? It's is permanent. It's it's immovable because it's written down. 
And for you, you know, it's, it's written down and, and why would we think it's not dynamic if it's written down? Most people that I know, I, I don't think that they're right, but most people that I know would say, well, no, it's, it's what, dynamic. It's written. And our job is to exegete, is to understand those words. But you, you, that's, not your, that's not where you're coming from, right? No. It really, it's, it's even a little hard for me at this point in my life to hear that which is really sort of, it, it actually shocks me a little when I, when I hear myself say that to you because I'm pretty sure that once upon a time I would have, uh, would have thought of the Bible primarily as some sort of you know, textbook of divine mysteries you know, that you had to go to with a set of tools, um, Greek or, or Hebrew, and knowing the context and the culture and all this sort of stuff, you could unlock those mysteries and know what God really meant, and then you could live according to this set of rules that God had sort of hidden in some ways in this book. Because everybody, I think even people who are the most literal Bible readers, you know, look at scripture and say, oh, wait a second, you know, that's not entirely clear. I mean, we talk about the, the, the clarity of scripture. That's one of the, I remember that class in seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth of it is, is that it, it, it's not very clear when the Psalms say, you know, take your enemy's children and smash their heads on rocks. You know, it's just not very clear. And so... Well, it is clear. It's not clear what to do with it. <laughs> well, that's true. I, I'm afraid. It's crystal clear, actually. <laughs> I'm afraid sometimes of people who read the Bible too literally in that regard. Yeah. But, um, you know, so, so the Bible, you know, has always, I think, even in the days in which I approached it more literally, it has always held out to me that there was more going on than than what meets the eye you know but now i really think of the bible more in terms of uh, something like love i mean when you said you can't teach what i described you can't teach re- experience and relationship well you know you, you can't teach love either mm-hmm. and you know really that's what we enter into yeah we well, enter into if you know what mature human beings most of us wind up with at least one person <laughs> if not a few more that we we love and that love is not something you can really learn i mean you can learn things about commitment you can learn things about you know your own family background and why you're attracted to certain people you can learn things about love but ultimately love is an experience and it's a relationship. And um, I think that's kind of how I think about the Bible. I think about the Bible as this amazing text that contains this profound ancient wisdom, this, these stories of God, and, and I, lo- I love them. And I, I, th- I think that's my testimony when it comes to scripture, um, hmm. it's so, like, it's like love. So, so say um, more about the tension that I'm, maybe it's not a tension, but I'd be interested in hearing more about on the one hand as a historian that, uh, you know, that drive to understand the, understand the background, understand the context, understand the things that have caused this thing to arise, this event, the writing down of these stories and then on the other hand, the idea of experiencing it 
in the current day in terms of how it is right now. And I would say tipping my hand a little bit, I like the idea of an experience, a relationship, and a love, the, the metaphors, that, the words you're using, because those are both, those both require, it sounds like, some information about, I can't love someone unless I know something about them. There is information that's needed in that exchange, in that relationship. It's a two-way street. So there seems to be some sort of balance in there, kind of the historian and the experiencer, or the relation, uh, the person in the relationship. How, in your, you know, because you have this unique background as a historian, and also as someone who finds the Bible something to love and to be in relationship with, how do those two sides of you interact? I, I'm glad that you asked that question because so often with a team of therapists, probably. That's <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, Whatever great, it takes. Great spiritual director. Um, yeah. I'm glad, but I'm glad you asked that question because sometimes you know people go to the Bible and they they have an experience, you know, and that experience is like, oh my gosh, I'm going to start my own community, and um, you know, God has set me up as the divine representative of all of wisdom here on earth and my followers must have must must obey me totally and they're going to be in a relationship with me and i'll abuse them you know <laughs> by having you must read my blog <laughs> by sexually having sexual relations with children under 15 you know and so so experience and relationship for me um are really in a very important frame and that is I was I was born into a Methodist family and my experience of growing up in a Methodist church is is so deep inside of me that I sometimes take it for granted and don't even think about the dimensions of how it shapes me Methodists believe in this thing that they call the Methodist quadrilateral, and that mm -hmm. is that the, the that the authority of a life well lived in faith is fourfold, and that is it's the Bible, it's tradition, it's reason, and it's experience. And so, I am as a latent Methodist as a person who's shaped by those four things those things are always interplaying in my own life and so when I talk about experience I always have reason um, in the picture and that is the life of the mind I believe that I, I, I do believe that part of the created image of God in us as human beings is our capacity to 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 think, um, to be able to develop these amazing senses that open us up towards truthfulness and beauty in the universe. That's the capacity of, of reason. And then tradition um, is always there. And amongst my PhD, I once had a fight with somebody who was yelling at me that I didn't care about tradition. And I said, I have a PhD in tradition. <laughs> 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 I care about tradition. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that's obviously something I've always loved. It's loved it so much that I was willing to spend that many years of my life pursuing it at a 
such an in-depth level. And then, of course, the Bible, um, that what we've been talking about, the Word, the living Word, the dynamic Word of God. And so for me, those four things are always interrelating. So when I talk about experience, um, the, the, the piece of, of tradition comes along and the piece of rationality and reason comes along with it. Um, so I'm glad you asked because I would want that, it, it would, might be crystal clear to Methodists and also to Episcopalians who enfold the reason or the experience part into reason, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of interesting. And, and Diana, just if I can, just to interrupt very briefly, I think for the benefit of maybe people who aren't used to this quadrilateral of, you know, the Methodist Wesleyan tradition, it's, it's different than how, some, how many people are taught to think, which is not that these things are sort of interacting with each other. Like the way we read the Bible is oftentimes rooted in our experience, in our tradition, in our reasoning. But other, other iterations would put the Bible sort of, it's a pyramid. Yeah. The Bible is a foundation and everything else builds on top of that. So that means inerrancy and strict exegesis and literal meaning, those kinds of things come into play. That's a very different way than what you're describing about how, how you come to, how did you put it before, um, life well lived? And uh, Say that again, that was very helpful to me. Well, the, the quadrilateral lays out the, the, the four things that Methodists believe uh, form a life right. well, a Christian life well lived. Okay. Well, and and what, I, what I think is really great about what you just said, and what's very important, is that the Wesleyans, this Methodist tradition, this is the original evangelical tradition. Yeah. The original evangelical tradition was not about biblical inerrancy. Uh, John Wesley and his friends and co-workers the men and women who were the first modern evangelicals, this is what they believed. They did not believe in a sort of a hierarchy of these principles. They believed that this literally, these four, these four foundations were literally the, the even sort of space in, from which all Christianity, all virtuous Christian life grew. Hmm. And they did not privilege one over the other. They looked at the experience, the experience of God, the experience of, of a heart strangely warmed, the experience of being born again, the rationality, the, 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 the caution and care given to the intellectual life, the deep traditions of, a Christian, uh, of Christian history, and the Bible. They believed that those were all of the same fabric of forming what it meant to be a person of faith in the world, a person who trusted in God through Jesus Christ. And so what comes later in the 19th century, mostly through American evangelicalism, is this weird pyramid of biblical inerrancy and a very sort of distinctive way of um, privileging particular interpretation of the Bible over those other three things, over... Not to get overly technical, Diana, but would you say that this is largely a Calvinist Princeton seminary thing, or is it broader than that? Because that that is a big element of the 19th century, 
um, is certainly the rise of the Calvinist tradition in America with Princeton Theological Seminary, which was inerrantist and let's say a pyramidal kind of pyramidal kind of structure rather than that quadrilateral structure. This is the part of the podcast where we take a one minute break to talk about our sponsor today, News and Pews, which is a free e-newsletter from Harper One, who published Pete's two latest books. The Sin of Certainty and The Bible Tells Me So. News and Pews is specially designed to give the Christian community updates on religion news coverage, reading group guides, sneak peeks, and special offers on books by some of the biggest names in Christian thought, some of whom we've had here on the podcast, like Rob Bell and Diana Butler Bass, but others including N.T. Wright, Desmond Tutu, Father James Martin. Barbara Brown, Taylor, Marcus Borg, and of course, our very own uh, Pete N. So learn more and subscribe at newsandpews.com. With your work in history, is, is, is there some validity to what I just said, or would you brought it out a little bit differently? Oh, you know, I actually think that that's a, a legitimate reading. And um, my, you know, my, my PhD, uh, as, as you two might know, but it's fun to share with everybody. My PhD is actually in 19th century American religious history. Mm-hmm. So, so I actually, I know this stuff pretty well. Yeah, okay. And, and, I, <laughs> and not only do I know it pretty well, but my doctoral advisor was George Marsden. Oh, <laughs> who was oh, the oh old, there you go. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> who wrote about all of this mm-hmm. and who himself was a Calvinist. And um, I can remember sitting in, in classes back in grad school and there's, there's literally a fight within the interpretation of 19th century uh, American evangelicalism about what was more important, uh, the Wesleyan Methodist experiential reading of evangelicalism or the Calvinist literalist reading mm-hmm. of evangelicalism. And I, I think that it would be very fair to say that the Calvinists really won the day um, right. in interpreting the Bible. Um, and they sort of blew the Methodist experiential reading, you know, out of the historical picture. And that has seemed to me increasingly sad. Um, but that tension's very much alive today because I think those two options, they might call it something different, but they're still very much a part of at least the American Christian experience. They really are. Um, I have had people say to me, and I have been a member of the Episcopal Church since I was 25 now, so a little bit more than 30 years, Um, and I've done a lot in the denomination and been in tons of meetings with bishops and all kinds of other stuff, and once in a while I'll be in a meeting with a bishop, and he or she will look at me and say, you know, you've never really stopped being a Methodist and an evangelical. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll stop it. I'll think about that. And I'll, I'll go, darn it all. I think that they might be right. Um, because of this sort of deep reading that I have of the text 
of the Jesus tradition that is so wrapped up in experience and relationship and wonder and all of this very Methodist Wesleyan stuff, you know, it's interpreted in a very 21st century way, but nevertheless, it's very clear that people in my own denomination recognize <laughs> that I'm reading the Bible in a way that's very distinctive and still has elements that are very evangelical. Well, it but wouldn't if, be, I think one of the things that I think is dangerous, it seems like to me, is, you know, what you guys are talking about this it's kind of two ways of doing it. And I'm channeling, we, we had Richard Rohr on not too long ago, and he, he mentioned this as well. I think the danger is when we start thinking that, we could, that the pyramid option is even possible. Hmm. Because it seems to me that the danger is thinking that we can just read the Bible and have that be an authority without it being informed by our tradition, our reason, and our experience. It seems like that is always present when we read anything, and that includes the Bible. So it seems like to me like the danger isn't to put the, the Bible ahead. It's when we forget that no matter what we do as humans, we can't escape the fact that these other three things are always there in our reading. Would that be fair to say? Well, God bless Richard Rohr, because one of the places where I have been converted in recent years is I am certain that every time the Bible mentions hierarchies and pyramids, it's in the context of those things being heresies or oppression or danger. Mm. And uh, the entirety of the Exodus is a story about getting away, being freed, being liberated from a culture that has the pyramid as its central sort of religious icon with this, you know, the, the building of, of these pyramidal structures where you have, uh, not only are they actual architectural buildings, but they're the structure of society where Pharaoh sits on top and this, this, this figure, this king figure is the literal mediator between all of the people below him and the gods who are above the earth and that this figure this this pharaoh all of the wealth of the people has to go up to pharaoh in order to constantly placate pharaoh so that pharaoh will be able to uh with joy and power uh intercede you know with these gods that sit above above them uh, for the good of the people and and the, the Moses story is all about freeing Israel from that structure and delivering Israel into an alternative structure. And the alternative structure, God announces when God and Moses are having a conversation there with the burning bush and Moses is standing. What's interesting to me is that although it takes place on a mountain, which you might think of as a pyramid structure, uh, the reality of it is, is that, well, Moses goes up to the mountain because the sheep had wandered up into the mountain and the mountain is considered to be a sort of a metaphor in the Bible of God's dwelling place. But as soon as Moses gets up there, this bush that's talking to him says, take off your shoes, Moses, and, because you're standing on holy ground. And so the whole sort of vision of God and Moses is, is a, a, a vision of being grounded, 
it's not a vision of pyramid glory. It's, it's, it's a vision of standing on the same level. God and Moses chatting with one another. Here I am, Moses says, and, and they're talking to, and Moses is talking to the bush who eventually says that the bush's name is I am. And so you have being, I am and here I am, on perfectly level ground, sharing a chat about what the world is supposed to be like. And, the, and, and God says to Moses, I'm going to set the people of Israel free. You're going to go down there and you're going to do this for me. And Moses says, okay, well, what do I do with them? And, and here I am, or, or excuse me, and the, the I am says to, to Moses, well, bring them back here. And Moses is probably thinking, oh, what we're going to do is we're going to build some big pyramid in the desert. We're going to put up a great temple here on this mountain, blah, 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 blah. And, and God says, and I'm going to make some farmers. Mm-hmm. I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you a land that's full of milk and honey. And you're going to farm it. And so in the Bible, the pyramid is prison. And freedom is being on the ground with God. Farming. And, you know, that also sort of connects with, you know, I mean, Walter Brueggemann, for example, who we've had on the show, will we'll argue, and I think, I think he's absolutely right, that once you get to Solomon, you have this pyramid structure coming back because you have administration and people have to be forced into labor to do things for the sake of the monarchy, which are absolutely necessary for the monarchy to move. So you, you sort of collapse back into that with the monarchy, which explains the Bible's ambiguity uh-huh. concerning monarchy. Is, is kingship a good idea or a bad idea? Yes, it depends. If, if you have a true king who obeys the law of God, you're okay. But basically what kings do is they oppress you because it's all about the structures. Yeah, and it's amazing to me that in the, the Hebrew Bible, you know, even though this is perfectly clear, that they're supposed to live in these villages and be farmers and have judges and the, the judges sort of sit within a circle of God's people and they, they adjudicate, they mediate disputes. They don't tell people what to do from some high place. They sit there and they listen. They're like shamans. Right, like sage figures of some Yeah, right. they're wisdom figures. Yeah. And so, but the people of Israel say, no, we want a king you know, because our neighbors have kings, and we want to be just like our neighbors, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and as you, you both know, I mean, God says, that's a really bad idea. I don't want to do that. And yet the people persist, and they talk God into it. And because God is always changing God's mind, God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. And then the people of Israel learn that it is a very ambiguous choice, and that the good kings come at a far far more historical distance uh, than do the bad king like centuries yeah yeah i mean you could you could live your whole life under really horrible rulers right. which is pretty much what's happening to us right now in america but that's a whole different question uh, different <laughs> that's a whole um, podcast i know 
I'm sorry. That's another podcast. <laughs> it yeah. is another podcast, but it really <laughs> makes sense of what's happening now because what happened is people in the United States said, we want a guy who built big pointy buildings in the sky. And that's what's going to make us all great again. Mm -hmm. Really high buildings that are bigger than all of our neighbors. Whereas the whole time, really, the Bible is saying, no, there is a different structure. It's a structure of sitting around a table of hospitality. It's a structure of being in the garden with God. It's a structure that is not hierarchical it's a circle it's a table it's a village and we keep saying we can't do that and and um the the piece that you know people might say oh well she's just talking about you know they're just talking about the hebrew bible it has nothing to do with the the new testament um I've been working on this new book on gratitude, which is, mm-hmm. you know, kind of all, all the strange things to be writing. In the first six months of the Trump presidency, I'm working on a book about thankfulness. Wait, wait you're not for Trump? No. Okay. <laughs> I was misled. <laughs> I guess I guess you weren't following my Twitter feed. <laughs> Right. I'm, becoming anyway. fa- I'm becoming famous on Twitter for being a sort of a, uh, I guess, a, a deeply biblical Christian voice uh, uh, that resists uh, Trump. Hmm. Uh, but, but what's interesting yeah. to me is, um, is uh, that the, the story of coming down out of pyramids is present everywhere in the New Testament as well. And one of the ones that I think is really interesting is the story of Zacchaeus. Mm. And that is, you know, here's this, as kids, speaking of one interpretation, uh, we're taught that this wee little man who is so cute and chubby and jolly and all these things, you know, is that he, 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 he struggles to climb up in the sycamore tree because he so wants to see Jesus when he comes by. Well, well Zacchaeus is a tax collector, you know, and the only way you but that a person gets to be a tax collector, a Jew gets to be a tax collector in the ancient Roman Empire, is that he buys his way into it. Mm-hmm. You know, the Romans, they auction off a certain number of these positions, you know, every year or so to people who are in the oppressed population, you know, because they're trying to make money and they're trying to get folks to be collaborators. And so Zacchaeus actually wins one of these auction positions and he's such a good tax collector that he works his way up into being the chief tax collector of Jericho. And so as soon as you know that, that Zacchaeus buys his way into a privileged place in a system where he gets to be above the people who are his friends and neighbors. And then he's so good at it that he gets rewarded by the Romans that he gets to move up in the system. The thing that's true about Zacchaeus is Zacchaeus is a climber. (laughs) Zacchaeus Zacchaeus is like that guy who got to be class president by stuffing the ballot box. Mm -hmm. Or the kid who stole your lunch money on the you know, by beating you up on the school playground and then goes in and eats the lunch in front of you while you're hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, this Zacchaeus is not a nice little chap. <laughs> and, so, and so here's this guy. <clears throat> you just a- collapsed every vacation Bible school in the country. <laughs> well, good. I hope yeah. so. <laughs> but, but, you know, so here's Zacchaeus up in this tree and Jesus walks into town. He looks up and he sees this fellow and he knows exactly what Zacchaeus is all about. And he says to him, come down. Mm -hmm. 
And so here we have in like this, this great Sunday school story, you know, the vacation Bible school story par excellence is Jesus saying, get out of the pyramid structure, Zacchaeus. Come down out of that because that's not where you're supposed to be. And what does Jesus say next? He says, I'm inviting myself to dinner. Mm. Sit around the table with me, Zacchaeus. That's where you're supposed to be. That's what true community is. That's where you hear the word of God. So this whole pyramid reading thing about, about the Bible, I think it's heresy. Because I think that the Bible teaches that, that those kinds of pyramid hierarchical structures are heretical. That they are absolutely against the dreamed intention of the creator of the universe. And yet we all keep getting, I think all of us on some level, and maybe at times more than others, we are drawn to that heresy of power and empire and status. And that's such a hard thing to resist. It is because we all want our way. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you know, I think that that's, that becomes, you know, sort of the nature of sin is that out of our own fear and out of our own shame, and out of our own, you know, sort of inability to live with the kind of humility and humanity that God really intended for us, we say, oh, you know, if only I was in charge, it would, it would all be so much better. And, and to, to really draw it deeply, you know, into the conversation that we're having about the Bible is I think that, the, I think that, Wesley and that early tradition of evangelicals, the one that shaped me so deeply, the one that I was baptized into, I think that that's literally what it was trying to get away from. Hmm. I think it was literally uh, that, that putting these four things around a table, these four things of experience, of reason, of tradition, and scripture, um, putting them around a table was a sort of a, a, a way of grounding our humanity, was a way of trying to constantly show us God's intentions and to remind us of who we really are. And it's in that knowledge um, that emerges faith. Um, and, you know, even Calvin said that. You know, we're kind of heaping a little bit on Calvin, who there are things about Calvin I actually like. Mm -hmm, sure. Um, one of them is that Calvin said that you, in order to know God, one has to truly know oneself. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the, the whole point of the Wesleyan grounding of those four aspects of Christian life was, was an attempt to keep us, to keep us, from thinking that we were too right or too powerful or too um, capable of being the one in charge. And, and that um, it doesn't mean that we're stupid or foolish or, you know, full of original sin. Um, but what it means is we are always tempted to wander into presumptions that take us away from the heart of God. And that, that we need to always be called back to that. So, so for so for me, I really have, um, you know, sort of I, I I really have been on a journey that leaves those pyramids behind. Hmm. 
and and really at a place where I'm constantly trying to set a different table and um, that's where I find my faith these days in that experience of that table well unfortunately our our time is coming to an end but Diana that was a fascinating sort of journey through the quadrilateral as uh, undoing these hierarchies and the exodus and Zacchaeus and then tying it to your journey. So I think that was a really a powerful kind of narrative you wove there. Um, what Can you just talk for just a, a minute um, about your new book on gratitude? And you mentioned it earlier, but maybe connect the dots a little bit with kind of how that journey and where you've ended up on that journey has led to this book on, on gratitude. And maybe say a little more about when it comes out and, and what the, the title or subtitle is. Um, the the book on gratitude emerged out of the last book that I wrote. That was a book called Grounded, and um, after and Grounded was a real attempt to write about the incarnation, which is you know a fancy word uh, for Jesus embodiment of God here in the world. And I realized that we talk a lot about incarnation and by putting that fancy word around it, we kind of protect ourselves from it. Uh, But in Grounded, I really walked into sort of the theater of my own life and tried to see where God was present and um, had this sort of really passionate rediscovery of God present with nature and through our neighbors. And so that was the book I was of mine that was published in 2015. Whenever I get ready to write a new book, I always look back to the older, the the most recently published book, and I try to um, see uh, what language or what um, trails I sort of left unexplored. And I didn't intend this at all, but when I reread Grounded. I looked at these chapters and I realized that I was constantly saying I felt so grateful or I felt thankful or I was overcome by gratitude. And I was stunned by it because I have never really thought of myself as a terribly uh, grateful person. As a matter of fact, I think of myself as a bit of a gratitude klutz. You know, I could never write thank you notes. I didn't. I didn't know what the sort of rules were for thankfulness. I, you know, I so really bad at it. But there it was. It was in my own book, and so I began to wonder about that. Wonder why it was that I thought I was so inept about gratitude. But when I was writing about a life grounded deeply in God and the presence of God deeply in the world that gratitude sort of just came out naturally and so that's what the new book winds up being um, a a very intentional uh, exploration of what gratitude is and what gratitude isn't and the complexities of gratitude and um, I found that it took me to a very different place uh, than I anticipated where um, I actually, that story about Zacchaeus is not only a story of coming down from a tree, from the pyramid of the hierarchy um, that was the Roman Empire, uh, but it's also a story about setting a new table. And it's, it's Zacchaeus' response to Jesus' invitation is to say, oh, you know, he basically says, oh, thank you. And I'm going to give away all of the money I stole from all these people, and I'm going to give it back 
twice as much or, or four times as much from all of the people that I have cheated. And so Zacchaeus' response to coming out of the tree and sitting in the table is to not just say to Jesus, oh, what can I do for you, Lord, because you've now saved my life and I'll give you anything as payback. Instead, Zacchaeus turns around and he looks at the world that he has cheated and he says, oh, I'm going to give everything away. I'm going to send all these gifts into the world. And that is gratitude. Gratitude is not payback to the person who has just invited you to dinner, but instead, true gratitude is the passing on of the gifts that have surprised us. Um, to and that's the also what Jesus, I think, calls salvation in that story. That's right. That's what he calls salvation. So that's where I, I wind up with this book. I'm writing literally a book about seeing salvation differently and seeing mm-hmm. it through the lens of great, of being when is that book coming out, Diana? That book, that book has an actual release date. It's the day after Easter. Um, oh, April, really? Yeah, April 3rd, 2018. Are you and, done with it yet? Uh, I am in the last... Are you allowed to say on the air? <laughs> I am in the last finishing stages of it. So yeah, they always fine. say that. Got it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're six months away. Okay. Yes, I'm, I'm done. So I'm really done. And, <laughs> okay. um, and, and so um, I just have one more little section to write. Yay. Right. Good. So if, if people want to follow along with the, the progress of that as it comes out and, and your other writings, where can people find you online, Diana? Uh, well, I have a website. Um, I urge people to read Grounded, you know, if they haven't read it. It's very much about what our conversation is, um, has has been all about. So it'll be a nice introduction to the work that I've I've done. Um, I have a website. They can follow me on Twitter. Uh, be prepared. Things get rowdy over there, but it is it is fun. That's what Twitter's for. I <laughs> and I also have a public Facebook page uh, where they can follow my work and that's more specifically about uh, what I'm writing, uh, poetry I like, prayers that I'm thinking about and praying, um, and announcements about books and events. Um, my private Facebook page, if you send me a, a, a note, uh, Mark Zuckerberg won't let me accept any more friends. And I'm really, right. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> but the that- standard places, website, that- Twitter. Oh so we begin with Pete them. not having any friends and you having 5,000 Too many. Too many. <laughs> you have anymore. Well, at least I have virtual friends. <laughs> True. Well, I have those too. There's a downside to that, by the way. So. Well, listen, Diana, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We had a great time. I think, you know, we, we covered a lot of very important things that I think a lot of people are already thinking through. So just thank you for being on the podcast. And, hey, let's, let's touch base again when your book comes out and we can talk more about some of the themes there uh, next year sometime. I, w- I would love that. Thank right. you very much for asking me. Thank you so much, Diana. Have a good night. I'm grateful for you guys. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us in our conversation with Diana Butler-Bass. We had a good time talking with her. We hope you had a good time listening. If you enjoyed the things that she was talking about, we would encourage you to go to Amazon, go to Google, type in Grounded, Finding God in the World, her latest book that came out in 2015. think that would be well worth your time. 
We'd also want to continue this conversation with you, so you can find me on Twitter at jbias, J-B-Y-A-S. You can find Pete on Twitter. You can find us both on Facebook, though Pete has uh, an author page, and I'm just, of course, relegated to the lowly status of the personal page, but always welcome having conversations there as well. You can also interact with us on thebiblefornormalpeople.com, primarily with Pete, who writes a lot of really good content there, blogs several times a week about current events, old events, the Bible, of course, and many other things. And our most recent edition, where we're trying to encourage this community of people talking about the Bible, is Patreon. Patreon.com, front slash, thebiblefornormalpeople. There you'll find... A lot of content. We have a community on Slack where people can have these conversations amongst themselves. And Pete also will be putting up, as well as myself, Q&As only for Patreon supporters, as well as just random rantings where we get on a video and just talk about a topic that we've been thinking about recently for five to ten minutes as you start your day or in your day. So please check it out patreon.com front slash the bible for normal people and thank you to everyone who has supported us so far